Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Got a question between the services. Well, why are the fields even a big deal? And, and some people may not realize, especially if you don't have young children, that especially in the Clear Lake area, there is a vast shortage of fields. Uh, I mean, if you've got a, kids playing baseball, you're literally looking for a little sandlot somewhere to practice. There's just not fields. And so uh, we've had uh, various ch- um, um, uh, sports groups approach us in the past and say, Ken, we're interested because we just don't have space. So it really is looking at a need. And um, just in our first week, we've already gotten $2,080. And from the children, uh, uh, $5.03, which is fantastic. Yeah. You know, in these multiples of 25, and children bringing 25 cents, that is incredible. And we love that. And, and that's what Jesus looks at. Remember, he, he looked at the widow and her might, and he said she gave more than all the rest because she gave out of, out of her poverty, out of her thing. So uh, very excited about that. Over these next three weeks, then, we're going to spend some time in one story of the Bible, the story typically called The Woman at the Well, found in John chapter 4, the Gospel of John. Jesus has what seems to be a random encounter with a woman that it turns into really one of the most profound experiences in the Bible, and it affects not only her life, but it, in fact, it infects her whole town. Uh, the story shows us how we too can be used by Jesus to affect those around us, even our entire community, because we have good news to share, as she is going to discover. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to, to John chapter 4. John is the fourth of the four Gospels, at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's the YouVersion Bible app you can use. Go to the live page, or we have the notes in the bulletin you can pull out, and there's uh, scriptures there as well as places to take some notes. So, beginning in verse 3, it says, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, just to kind of ground our, our, our picture here, this is the, the Holy Land. Uh, here's the Mediterranean. Uh, this is the Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is right down here. Uh, the colors came out a little darker than I thought. And a way to think about it, we, we sometimes don't realize the scale. Um, and, but the truth of the matter is this is kind of like East Texas, uh, imagine this as a small version of Toledo Bend, all right? And, and this is the Sabine River running right down through here to the Dead Sea, which is like the Gulf of Mexico. It's salty, all right? And then over here is I-45, all right? You just don't want to go on the other side of I-45. So it really is kind of like that. Uh, there's no Sam, Lake Sam Rayburn out here or anything like that. It's very dry. And there, there are hills or mountains running through this part of the land um, that, that are not particularly high. They, they're high for us here in East Texas. But uh, like Jerusalem, some of the highest points of Jerusalem get up around 3,000 feet. But, but when you consider the Dead Sea is the lowest place on the planet at like 1,300, some odd square, some 1,300 feet below sea level, and this whole valley is below sea level, and even the Sea of Galilee is several hundred feet below sea level, you, you, you get this sense of going up. And this is only maybe 15 or 20 miles as the crow flies 
going from here to here. So like in the story of the Good Samaritan, when it says a man was on his way up to Jerusalem, he really is going uphill to get there from, from Jericho to that, to that location. So um, you've probably heard again of the story of the Good Samaritan and what makes the, the story so important is that it's, it's the Samaritan who who comes along and helps the beaten Jewish traveler, even though Jews and Samaritans were practically enemies. And just to kind of get a handle on that, I wanted to just kind of walk back through a little bit of history, uh, jump back a thousand years to the time of King David, when the whole region had been under the nation of Israel. So this whole area in blue now, instead of being divided, is, is the nation of Israel under King David's leadership. But after his son, King Solomon, reigned, Solomon reigned with a heavy hand, especially over some of the northern areas. And the ten northern tribes of Israel split off from the area around Jerusalem. And so the southern area, the southern kingdom, became known as Judah, after the primary tribe that stayed put, while the northern kingdom retained the name of Israel, but was also called Samaria after the capital city of Samaria in that area. Unfortunately, the kings of, of Israel increasingly led the people away from God. They, they weren't faithful to the teachings of God. And in 723 BC, God allowed the Assyrians, a nation to the northeast of the Holy Land, to come down and conquer Israel. And Assyria had a practice in, in when it would come in and, and take over a land to discourage revolt, where they would, they would exile or take out most of the people the indigenous people of that land, and send them to other places, spread them out among multiple places. And then they would bring people from multiple places in so that there weren't the family, the family connections, the, the, the groups, the, the way people know each other or have history together. Uh, a remnant of, of Israelites then were left behind who mixed with other conquered peoples from Assyria that came into that area. Over time, they married, they, they, they adopted spiritual practices from other groups, and the purity of the Jewish race and faith was diluted. The, the belief in one God would eventually prevail, but it really kind of changed significantly from the Jewish faith based down in Jerusalem, south in Jerusalem. The people of Samaria ended up accepting only the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. The, the Tanakh was the Jewish, is the Jewish name for it now. And it, those five books sometimes are called the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five. And, and the, the Samaritans rejected the later historical writings like uh, uh, um, Kings and Chronicles, the prophets, the wisdom literature like Psalms and Proverbs, and, and some of those, because those writings centered more on King David, who had been a part of the southern kingdom, and his ancestry and his line. And they didn't want that. They didn't want anything to do with that. So the Samaritans created their own temple for worship on Mount Gerizim, and, and Jerusalem was rejected, and the temple was rejected as the center of worship. And so here is today Mount Gerizim and the remains of that temple that was actually built on that site. Now we're going to jump ahead another couple of hundred years to 587 B.C., and the Babylonians, Babylonians coming from what we would call modern-day Iraq, uh, conquer Judah, and in fact, the whole land, the whole Holy Land area, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the Jewish temple, and deport the Jews to Babylon. But instead of spreading them out, they allowed them to stay together as a group. 
and they settled together as a group. And because they were together, they, they ended up staying true to their faith, staying true to their, their people. They did not intermarry. And so 50 years later, when the Persian Empire conquered Babylon, Persian being modern-day Iran, their p- policy was to let people kind of go back to their home. And so the Persians allowed the Jews to return back to Jerusalem and Judah where they began to rebuild the the city and rebuild the temple. Now, as they began to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans, who were now a, a mixed group of people living just north of Jerusalem, said, hey, can we come and help you? The Jews, who were somewhat arrogant, said, no, we are the pure Jews and we are not going to have anyone who is unclean who has, who has modified the faith to come and be a part of this holy endeavor. Uh, you can read about that in Ezra chapter 4. And so that, that, that created hostility and conflict continuing between the groups. Jump a couple of more, hundred years more further. Uh, Alexander the Great, the Greek king, comes through the Holy Land around 330 B.C., and conquers the whole, that whole area. Knowing that the Jews had a history of uprising at times, he chooses Samaria to be really kind of the capital, uh, which doesn't set well, very well with the Jews. And yet over the next couple of hundred years, Greek influence waned, and the Jews increasingly kind of regained their own, um, a, t- a little bit of autonomy, and at one point, they attack Samaria and go in and burn the Samaritan temple there on Mount Gerizim. So, by the time of Jesus, around 30 AD, so you see, we've, we've covered in about four minutes, we've covered a thousand plus years. By the time of Jesus, though the whole area was now ruled by the Roman Empire, who, who ruled it with a very strong hand, There were ongoing tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans. It makes sense why there was the story that Jesus told the Good Samaritan was so significant, why nobody could understand why a Samaritan would help a Jew. So when Jesus, the Scripture tells us, when he is going from up here in Galilee, now this is a a relief map that shows a little more of the geography, and he's headed down here to Jerusalem, the short way, in fact, the way he went was down through Samaria, through this region. However, because of the tensions, uh, this trip, which typically would take three days, most Jews didn't do that. They would cross over the Sabine into Louisiana, and they would come down the west coast of uh, side of Louisiana along the Sabine, and then they would cross back over the Sabine, or the Jordan River, and uh, go back up to Jerusalem. And uh, the Scripture tells us so that Jesus was in a hurry and so he comes straight through, and it cuts his time, his travel time, about in, in half. So verse 5, it says, He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, again, one quick look. Sychar was close to the ancient capital of Samaria. This is a much shrunk view uh, these distances are only a, a, a few miles. And here is the well. Here's where we think Sychar is. Here's ancient um, Shechem. Here is Mount Gerizim where that temple was. 
And here is uh, the the modern-day location that is believed to be Jacob's well. And this distance from here to here is only a few hundred yards. It's it's maybe a half mile at most. So it's a fairly close distance. The well, locals believed, had been been, uh, cleared out by uh, the patriarch Jacob, who had cleared down to the water. Uh, Jacob was the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. A few centuries later, in, after the time of Jesus, a, a, a church was actually built over what was believed to be the well. And this is a picture of that well today. Uh, and looking inside that area, that is, that is, that's what it is today. The well is deep. It's over 100 feet down to the, to the water. And uh, it appears that, that the water is from a spring. It's, it's moving water. It's not just water that collects from rain or something like that. It actually has a source that brings it in. And those drawing water from it would typically bring their own bucket or skin to draw the water up. They would need a long rope to do that. And there wouldn't have been one sitting there. It would have been taken. So Jesus arrives at the well that John tells us about it says the sixth hour, which uh, in that time's accounting would have been about noon, would have been the heat of the day. And, and we're told he sits down beside the well, probably on the stone wall around it, uh, because it tells us he was tired. And th- this, just this little bit is kind of an interesting thing, because the, the Christian faith has always affirmed that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And, and yet, here we see this example that Jesus got tired. We think, well, he was God. He, he, he could do anything. He was all-powerful. And yet he was man. And he got tired, and he needed to sit down, and he needed to rest. And um, that, that humanity is so important because it means he understands us. He, he has lived what we have lived through. In verse 7, then, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us a little sidebar here, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's the the history that we kind of talked about, why, why that is the case. Mark tells us that and in this aside, why they're alone and, and why also really the woman arrives by herself. The disciples and, and Mark's readers would have expected that there would probably have been no one around the well at, at midday. The, the, the herder, sheep herders would have fed would water early in the morning or late in the evening and, and typically women would come. It was typically a woman's responsibility to draw the water early in the morning and, and, and late in the afternoon, early evening, to take care of the needs of the water for the home while the husband was, was out tending for the flocks or tending to the fields, as might be the case. And so this twice-daily time was kind of a ritual in these communities where the ladies would kind of walk down to the well together and they would talk and they would gossip and they would share stories and then they would, they would pull their water up, draw their water up, and then they would head back. So for this woman to be here at the, in the middle of the day, coming to get water, tells us something. It tells us she was probably a social outcast of some kind. And in fact, Jesus, through divine knowledge, is going to later confirm this in verse 18 because he tells her, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So the woman had, had 
gone against the morals of her community. And, and either she was being shunned from the normal times of collecting water, or she felt such shame for what she had been through that she chose to avoid the other women. So this makes Jesus' request to her for water so unusual. And, and, and the request really surprised her. She's expecting, even though she sees a guy sitting there, she's expecting she's going to come, she's going to quietly draw her water, she's going to leave, and, and there's not going to be any conversation. And when he talks to her, she asks him about this because he is crossing a lot of cultural taboos for that day and time. He, he crosses one by speaking to a woman in public. Now, that may seem odd to us today, but in that day and time, typically men did not speak to women in public. And it was a woman of questionable morals. And what's more, he was Jewish and she was Samaritan. All of those things were, were really unusual. The amazing thing really isn't that, that Jesus would just ask her for water, but that he would talk to this Samaritan woman at all and ask her for anything. So Jesus answers her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus doesn't really directly answer her question about why is he talking to her. But instead, he, he points out that she doesn't really realize who, who she is talking to. And he uses a couple of phrases that, that appear to be nearly equivalent. The phrase living water appears to be similar to the gift of God that Jesus says he offers. So here's something else we need to know. On a purely physical level, the, word, the phrase living water was a typical Jewish expression for running or fresh water of that day and time. In other words, it was common language among the Jews to talk about if you went to the Jordan River, that would be living water. If you got water from a spring, that was living water. And if you've ever been uh, uh, camping or backpacking, you know that, that moving water tends to be safer to drink versus stagnant water or still water. Some wells were dug and were more collecting places for water, and other wells, like Jacob's well, was the one that, that hit a spring so that there was, there was moving water. So she's thinking, okay, I'm here at this well where there is a source of living water. And, and her response shows us that's what she's She's thinking about. She's on a very, the very physical level. Jesus is at, the, is at this well. He's alone. He's by himself. He didn't bring a bucket. He didn't bring a skin. He didn't bring any rope. He has no means to draw up the fresh, living water. So she says to him, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I mean, he says he's, he's got living water. She knows the territory. She knows there aren't any creeks or ponds anywhere around. You know, the, Sam Rayburn is a long way off. Toledo Bend's nowhere close. The Sabine River's a, a good distance away. There isn't this water here. So she's trying to figure out where, where is he getting this? But in Jewish thought, there was another way that water was symbolized. It, the absolute necessity for water, for, for them in a very dry climate, for all of us, of course, but for them in particular, allowed it to have become a spiritual symbol in Old Testament times. In Psalm 42, it says, as a deer pants for flowing streams. There's the physical level. 
So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So this, the physical mirrors the spiritual. God had promised he would satisfy their spiritual thirst through his spirit. He said to Isaiah, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God's spirit would quench their spiritual thirst and bless them and their descendants. And yet the prophet Jeremiah recognized that all too often God's people had turned away from God forsaking his command to keep him, God, first in their lives, and they had sought other gods, other idols, other things to quench their thirst through the things of the, of the, world, the world, the things of the earth, you know, the, the, that they would look for wealth as somehow to manage their lives or prosperity or status. I, uh, Jeremiah said, records the Lord saying to him, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Uh, a cistern was often like um, a rock cavity that could hold water. It could be a natural or it could be hewn out. It could be cut out of the rock, all right? And, and it was very common in those days in, in a very dry climate to have cisterns. However, what Jeremiah is saying is that that when people try to do it on their own, it's like they've made a cistern, but somehow they cracked the rock. And so even though water can get into the cistern from time to time, it's going to dribble out. It's going to leak out. It doesn't have any lasting impact to be able to quench the thirst of those around them. And, and what he was talking about then is, is equally true today. People tend to seek their fulfillment and, and answers in life in almost everything around them. In fact, it seems that it's, it's not until we've tried everything else and still come up thirsty, still hit a wall, still desperate, that we somehow often finally turn to God. And that's the story of some of us in this room. And there's nothing, I'm not saying that in an disparaging way. God is grateful for us when, when we do that, no matter how the circumstance may be. But the Bible indicates that, that in every single human being, there is this God-given thirst, this hunger for him to help us to drive us to God. And yet we... We feel that thirst and we think, well, well, surely if I get into the right relationship, it'll be taken care of. Surely if I can make enough money, it'll be taken care of. Surely if I, if I had the right set of friends, it would be taken care of. Surely if I lived in the right neighborhood, surely, you know, and you can go on and on and on about all the things of this world that we keep looking to, to somehow fulfill that thirst within us. And, and yet, chasing all those dreams always proves elusive because, as Jeremiah said, they're broken cisterns. They can hold it for a while, but not for any length of time. I mean, how many times have we hoped for a raise and, 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 and thought, if I could just get a raise, then 
I could take care of some of the things that are going on in my life. I would, we would be in much better shape as a family, or I'd be in better shape, and things would be so much better. And then, lo and behold, we get the raise. And it's wonderful. And yet, a few months later, what are we thinking? Boy, if I could just get a raise, everything would be okay. It, it's like no matter how much we get, we always think there must be some a higher level, something more that if I could get there, then everything would be okay. Then I would have what I needed. Sometimes people get married because they think, if I could just get married, if I could find the right guy or the right woman, I would, I would be fulfilled. My life would be good and everything would be fine. And yet, even couples who have been married a long time, who are followers of Jesus, would tell you that there's no way another person can ultimately fulfill that thirst, that hunger, because it, it was a, a hunger, a thirst created in us by God that only he can fill. Satan and, and the enticements of this world lure us into believing that, that somehow more, more of this stuff, more of this world, more of something is always the answer. But the Bible tells us over and over again it is only God who can fulfill us. Augustine, writing a few centuries after the time of Jesus, said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And, and every single one of us has experienced that. I know I have. I grew up in the church, for heaven's sake, and yet I never really trusted Christ for the longest time. And it just seemed like something was always missing. And, and for, for folks outside the church who, who don't even have that answer. I mean, and, and sometimes we look at people and they think they got their act together, you know. We look at someone who's up at the top of the pecking order and they think they're doing great. And yet I've talked with, with people who are CEOs of large companies. And they'll say to me in private conversations, you know, everybody looks at me and thinks I've got it made but I need something too, something still missing inside, or, or I felt that until I found Jesus. See, we're all really the same. That's why the story of Adam and Eve, beginning back in Genesis chapter 3 up to today, speaks to us because human beings haven't changed. We are all still battling the same sin. And yes, it manifests itself in different kinds of things. In the time of Jesus, it might be sheep. Today, it might be cars or, or land, but we are dealing with the same things. And, and an angel speaking to the, the apostle John said, promised in Revelation 7, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb, and the lamb was a, was a title given to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the, the sacrificial lamb from the Passover. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Later, God would say in Revelation to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, freely, for all who will come and receive. 
And the Lord said to Isaiah, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. God freely offers his life-giving water to satisfy the deepest thirsts and longings of our souls. A, A thirst that nothing on this earth was created to be able to satisfy. And yet seeking those things just delays the inevitable. It's always if I have just a little more money or if I just have a little better job or I have a, 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 the right spouse or if my kids would just act right, that somehow there's always something more that we're looking for that we think will somehow fix all of our problems and make us okay. And what, what this story is telling us, what this Bible tells us is that God and God alone offers us what we most thirst for, his salvation. In verse 12, the woman asks um, uh, Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And, And like us, this woman continues to think in terms of the physical that this thirst is, is somehow physical. There's something I can do. There's something more I can get, gather or buy or, or collect. But Jesus keeps pointing her to deeper things, to the, to the real thirst of her soul. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, pointing, you, you have to see him. You can imagine him just, he's pointing to the well. He's sitting there on the edge and he's putting his hand down. Everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus not only keeps pointing the woman back to spiritual thirst, but but he does something even more startling. He tells us, he tells her that he can give her this living water. Not another well, not another thing. He is the source of this eternal life, this salvation. He is the source that can fill the deepest longing of her soul. But the thing is, he's not just talking about her. He's talking about her towns, the townspeople. He's talking about all the Samaritans. He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about the people who live in Clear Lake and in Pasadena and Lamarck and Houston. He's talking about all of us. He is the source of living water that can overcome the hurts of a life lived on the fringe of society, on a life that apart from him misses God's best. Jesus would say later in John, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He, he wants us to experience this. And, and in a sense, he's, there he's summing up the experience with the Samaritan woman because her broken lifestyle is a symptom of the work of the thief, of Satan who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus came to give us, to give her, to give all people, to offer to all of us a rich, abundant life that begins to experience God's best even now and here and certainly in eternity forever. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, 
Okay, the truth of the matter is she still, she really doesn't get it yet. But, but she's starting to move in the right direction. That somehow in Jesus, he can provide the living water that will quench that thirst in her and in every person. Not just people in church. People outside church. People who don't want to come to church. So that we don't have to endlessly seek things to make us okay. People to somehow make us feel good about ourselves. It's not that those, those things or people in and of themselves are bad. It's that they weren't created by God to quench a thirst that only God can quench. They can't do what they were made, what they were not made to do. And yet we get it in our minds and Satan tempts us and, and the world around us entices us that somehow these things are the answer. And, and, and every single human being experiences this thirst. And yes, some of us have come to Jesus and we have begun to, to find that fulfillment of that thirst and receive God's salvation for eternity. But, but many others, so many others, all around us, right where we live and work and play, are still thirsting. And you and I have this incredible opportunity from God to offer them the living water. And as they welcome Jesus Christ into their life, His Spirit comes to live in them, to begin to satisfy their every thirst. And, and, and when you and I begin to realize that everyone experiences this, okay, this isn't unique to you. You think, I'm the only one who feels this way sometimes. No. It's a part of the human condition, the fallen human condition. If we understand that everybody experiences this thirst, then sharing our faith story or in, inviting someone to church or inviting them to a small group or inviting them to watch a, 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 a Christian movie or telling them about Jesus, these kinds of things are the acts of ultimate kindness and love. They're about caring for someone beside ourselves, beyond ourselves, that, that what we have begun to experience in Jesus, as we have begun to find contentment, as we have begun to find some peace, as we've begun to find joy, as we've begun to find that, that I don't have to be somebody else to be okay. Because in Jesus' death on the cross, he proved that I am in myself okay, that I am loved as I am. When he gives me that freedom, he offers that to all the rest in Jesus. And so to offer someone what they need more than anything isn't pushy. It's gracious. It's kind. It's loving. And that's exactly what, what Jesus calls you and me to do with those around us. Because that's exactly what God has done for us with others who came to us and lived that out. It's not you walking up somebody and grabbing them by the shirt and, and haranguing them and, and, and beating them over the head and you, you're going to hell if you don't believe. It's living an authentic lifestyle alongside someone and letting them see 
That though we don't have all the answers, and, and, we don't, and we don't fully have that living water completely in us, yet it is in us, and, it, and, and Jesus said it's intended to well up from us into others around us. That you who are followers of Jesus Christ, in fact, have exactly what the world around you needs what people in this world needs and to offer someone love and acceptance and grace is God's desire for every person. It's why Jesus came. He said the, the Son of Man came to seek and save the, the lost. Those who don't know that they're missing the answer. And as we approach the holidays, these are a great time to help people refocus on what's most important. This, to offer gratitude to God for His Son, Jesus Christ, who offers to all living water. And so the question is, who around you, who do you know, who do you interact with, who do you live with that needs living water that is being offered by Jesus Christ? On, in your bulletin insert on the back bottom, there's that question, who around you needs the living water offered by Jesus. Think about that. Maybe you write it down. Maybe you make a list. Maybe you invite them to some of the, the Christmas experiences we have coming up. Uh, or in your life, in your home, or here at church. It's an opportunity to help someone see beyond their physical desires to their deeper spiritual needs, which, which are often clouded by the physical desires. See, God wants you and me who have chosen to follow Jesus to share his good news with others, to be conduits of that love and grace and living water. And, and the truth of the matter, he is already working in their lives, so we, just, we get the opportunity to join in in his work, to be a part of what God is doing. So the question is, who can you be praying for? Who can you, starting today, be looking at and thinking Maybe this person needs what Jesus has to offer, the living water. And in a couple of weeks on the 19th, as, as Brandon mentioned earlier, we're going to give you a concrete way to pray for them by walking that land out there. That land that we believe God has provided to us as a means to offer the love of Christ into our community where people don't have space sometimes to say we care. It's not about us. It's not something we hold on to ourselves, but we offer ourselves and our resources out into the world for the sake of the world, for the salvation of the world. That a field can be living water if someone comes and experiences Jesus Christ, if it draws them into him. And we'll have stakes that you can write a first name on. And as you walk, you can just plant those stakes around the, the wall as a way of thinking about these people that you're praying for in the coming days and weeks and months and years. And you'll hear more about it, but, but right now to even be thinking about who around you is thirsty and needs what Jesus offers. And a way that we remember that, that we are reminded, is communion. And in just a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion right here in this space. As, as one of the central things that Jesus told us to do to remember him, to remember that he is the bread of life, 
that his blood was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And so as soon as the service is over, we invite you, if you have children, to go pick them up and and come. If you're up in the risers, to come down on the floor because the the service will start in about four or five minutes after, after the closing prayer here in just a moment. And you'll have the opportunity to to receive communion. Uh, Before that, our prayer teams will be here out to the sides. And if you want to talk to somebody about Jesus or about praying or or any of that or or some need you have, they're here for you. Myself and a couple of a few friends will be out here and out these doors, out the lobby. And we'd love to say hello to you if you're a guest today or if you've been coming for a little while. We'd love to to meet you. But let's just let's close now in prayer this this time before communion and ask God to help us share this this living water. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person here. And and for those of us who have welcomed you into our lives, help us be these springs that can share this living water with others. For those of us who haven't made that decision, Father, who maybe have been hunting for it in all these different ways, help us to stop. Help us to recognize your truth and, and bring that living water into us. Father, every one of us is thirsty. Every one of us needs what you and you alone offer because you created us. And it is a part of who every single human being on this planet is. And Father, not only may we receive it, but may it overflow out from us as you plan, as you desire, so that we can offer living water, your living water, to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, our community and beyond, that the world might be quenched and experience your grace. We ask this, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Let God use you to quench someone's thirst today. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.